IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm T.J. O'Hara, the Principal Political Analyst for IBN, the Independent Voter News. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests, so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guest today is Chini Sheehan Zeno, a professor of political science and international studies at Iona College. Dr. Sheehan Zeno is a political contributor with Bloomberg Television and Radio, on which she appears regularly. She is also the author of several books, and her most recent one, entitled American Democracy in Crisis, The Case for Rethinking Madisonian Government, really captured my attention. Dr. Sheehan Zeno is here to discuss the crisis she describes in her book and what we can do about it before it's too late. Welcome to Deconstructed, Jeannie. Thank you for having me. It's great to chat with you. Jeannie, first of all, congratulations on your book. I found it to be extremely well-researched and written and thought-provoking as well. Your students are very lucky to have you as a professor. So to begin, I'm inclined to evoke a bit of history by asking, what kind of government have the framers given us, Dr. Sheehan Zeno? You know, one thing I'm always cautious about, TJ, is when we talk about the framers and there's any hints of criticism, people sometimes take that to be unpatriotic. And that's absolutely not the case. The framers understood that what they were doing was far from perfect. And so I want to say that straight out because that's often an issue that arises. But I think the government that they gave us was the best they could do under the conditions they were working with at the time. And it was a republic. It was a democratic republic but it was a particular type of republic designed to focus almost primarily and singularly on protection of liberty. And for that reason, we live today with some of the elements of politics that some of us may not like as much. So that's what I think they were giving us. And there are benefits to it, but there's also some drawbacks that we very much live with today. So as I alluded to Franklin's a republic, if you can keep it comment when we started, He also had a comment about more of a pure democracy, saying it's two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. So I take it that they were firmly entrenched in some nuance of a democracy, as you refer to it, a constitutional democracy. What are the challenges that they ran into in trying that delicate balance? Well, I'm so glad you describe it as a balance because they absolutely were walking a tightrope in many, many ways as they gathered in Philadelphia. And We know a lot of the compromises that they made, some of which are deplorable by any stretch of the imagination, and most notably the three-fifths compromise or the disenfranchisement of vast majorities of the population. But other things that they did and other tightropes that they were walking don't get as much attention. And for those reasons, I describe those as even more insidious because the ramifications of those, and they are mostly in my mind structural choices that the framers made, the ramifications of those are much more prevalent in our lives or very prevalent in our lives today, and yet we don't talk about them too much. And that to me is the problem. I spend a lot of my time following what is going on in Washington, D.C. This summer in particular, it's been all about COVID and infrastructure. And we are now from infrastructure summer to infrastructure fall, maybe soon to be infrastructure winter. And we still do not have a bill passed. And who knows if and when one will get passed. 
that's a result of decisions the framers made at the founding. Not as much as we talk about in the media, the people in Washington, but the structure in which they are operating. And that's really what my focus is on. Is that part of the partition of powers that Madison referred to in Federalist 51? He mentioned that it was essential to preserve liberty. Is it the partition of power that's causing the problem? It absolutely is. You just take a step back. The framers were committed to a form of democracy. And as we talked about, they decided on a republic in which you elect representatives. But they were very, very intent on protection of liberty. That was their goal. And following Montesquieu, they said the best way to protect liberty, which is freedom from government, is to divide power as much as possible. I sometimes describe the framers as Montesquieu on steroids because they not only separated powers, which is what he recommended in Spirit of the Laws, but they created other massive amounts of division of power. Bicameralism, right, is a key one. Federalism is another one. So they divided power to ensure their liberties and freedoms from government, and that is noteworthy and it's important. But when you divide power so much, what you do is you make it difficult to get things done, which is the position we find ourselves in today, as I mentioned, something like infrastructure. What type of specific problems arise from that partitioning? Well, the specific problems have to do with responsiveness to the majority will is one example of what is pushed over by the wayside, if you will, once you are so intently focused on protection of liberty. It's hard to be responsive to the majority when you can't form a majority. And that's what our framers created with this system. I talk about legs of a stool. They were so intent on one leg, which was protection of liberty, which again is something we should all applaud. But in doing so, they didn't give as much attention to other requirements of a democratic state. One is responsiveness to the majority. Democracies should be responsive to the majority. And yet when you divide power so much, you give minorities an outsized voice in the system. So one example I use all the time, I was born in Connecticut, and Connecticut was where we all experienced Sandy Hook Elementary School, 20 of these five and six-year-olds being slaughtered in their schoolroom. And I remember talking on the air after that. We couldn't imagine that we wouldn't get gun reform legislation out of Congress after that. And yet, almost a decade beyond Sandy Hook, there is no federal legislation on gun control, common sense gun control, supported by many gun owners and Second Amendment rights advocates, even though it is supported by three quarters to 80 percent of Americans. What has happened is in our system so divided, minority and I mean political minorities, get an outsized voice in what does and doesn't happen. And gun control is just one of many examples of this repeating itself throughout our modern history. I think gun control is an excellent example, but you could name almost any crisis that we have in this country. I'd put immigration on the table, homelessness, opioid abuse, systemic racism. All of those things have been issues that have confronted this country for decades. So my question, other than looking at it from a structural standpoint, why aren't the powers that be taking the responsibility and being held accountable, in effect, for actually addressing the issue? Because otherwise it comes across from an outside perspective that they prefer to maintain the issue for political reasons rather than fix the problem. 
Yeah, and I, it's such an important question because I do think, you know, we don't want to absolve or I don't want to absolve any individual public official, elected official, leader of their responsibility. And my sense doing this work for a long time is that we tend to, and I mean in academia, in the media, and elsewhere, focus an awful lot on individuals in office. And I think that's important and it's fine and it's deserved. What I try to do is to say, you may like or not like Donald Trump, you may like or not like Joe Biden, but the reality is, as you just mentioned, almost no matter who is in office, whatever their positive or negative attributes, the same thing seems to happen. And so to me, we have to look at the structure to explain that. I don't want to say it explains it in whole, and I don't want to reductionize it to this is the be-all, end-all explanation but it is critically important. One of the things that we don't think enough about is that there are a lot of things on which Americans agree. And we often hear in this country about polarization, particularly in the last few years, and there's a good deal of it. But the reality is there's a good deal of things on which the majority of Americans, vast majorities, agree on. And the question should be, why aren't we making progress on those things? And the answer, has to do with the structure of our system, which is designed to divide power so much that really the only way in the modern era we make progress is when things get to a crisis point. You know, we have a tendency in this country to hear a lot about crises, whether it's a war on drugs or a crisis involving infrastructure or whatever it may be, immigration. It's true. And the reason we're at a crisis point is because we know there's a problem and yet things aren't getting done. Yes, the people in office need to be held accountable for that, but the reality is is that the structure makes it difficult for them to get things done even when they want to. And that's what I think at least some of the focus needs to be. How do we incentivize people in office to respond to the majority? When you structure a government, you want to incentivize the people working within it to work together, not incentivize them to work at cross purposes, which is what we have. You bring up an interesting point when you talk about incentivize, because one of the things that I've always talked about in the political environment is we tend to punish. If you look at the way regulations come out of our state, local, and federal governments, we fine, we charge fees, and so forth. What if we were to incent instead dangle opportunities in front of the private sector and get out of the private sector's way. Well, that's right. And, you know, I think the private sector is incredibly important. The nonprofit sector, incredibly important. Tocqueville talked a lot about our religious institutions, incredibly important to helping us move forward in a sound way. And I absolutely agree with you. My view has always been that you need the structure. The structure is the rules of the game. That gives people the guidepost by which they maneuver through the game. And our structure incentivizes people, for the most part, not to come together too easily to resolve problems. And again, the reason for that is because the framers were very, very concerned that if government got involved in the way, it would limit their freedoms. And that's a real concern, and they were right about that. But when it comes to the point that the government can't do basic things that the public needs and demands in the 21st century, what was at one point a benefit becomes a problem, and we need to at least talk about it and think about how to make it better 
And the framers themselves said, we're giving you this constitution. It's not perfect. You should think about it. And hence, they gave us an amendment process to work with if we needed to change it. Well, Jeannie, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about American democracy and crisis when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IVN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Jeannie Sheehan Zeno, professor of political science and international studies at Iona College and author of the compelling book, American Democracy in Crisis, The Case for Rethinking Madisonian Government. Jeannie, we've talked generally about the government and the way it's structured, but let's be more specific about what's broken. How would you define the systematic problems you address in your book? When I think about the systematic or the structural problems, what we're talking about, you know, quite basically is how the system was designed and what the purpose or the goal, if you will, of the system was. One of the people I mention a lot in lectures and also in the book is management guru Peter Drucker. And in the context of business organizations, he often would say, when an organization of any type is floundering in a sense of malaise or crisis, it's time to look back at the assumptions on which the organization was built and to see if those still make sense today. And I think the same thing is true with our government system. We need to look at not just the structure, but what were the assumptions or the purpose which guided the design. And after you understand that, you not only have a really good sense as to what the framers had in mind and what they were doing, but what the outcomes may be and whether, in fact, this design and purpose still suits us today. And so as you look back at the framers, it's very clear that the purpose was protection of liberty. The design was division of power. And the outcome of that is it's hard to what they sometimes refer to as form a government or get things done. Now, if you are okay with that, then you're perfectly fine with the structure as it is. But if you are looking at issues from healthcare to infrastructure to gun control to immigration and everything in between, and asking yourself why at this very moment we're almost on the brink of a credit default in this country, then maybe you want to think about how can we restructure or tweak this system so that we change and think about changing the purpose of our government. And to me, I think that's what we don't talk enough about. What was the purpose in 1787? And do we still agree with that purpose today? Most Americans don't sit around asking ourselves that, understandably so, because we have lives. But when we sit back and think about it, we may think the purpose is something beyond protection of liberty or something in addition to that. And if that's the case, if it's, for instance, addressing critical issues, if it's creating good citizens, whatever the purpose may be, then you need to redesign the system accordingly. Well, you're an outstanding political scientist, so I pose this question to you as a political scientist. If we took a poll, which do you think would rank higher, liberty or a government's responsiveness, effectiveness, and accountability? You know, TJ, I, and I'm also, by the way, a poster by training, so thank you very much. And I don't know what would. I think it's a really important question. 
We are, I think, in some ways, the Republican and Democratic Party, very loosely defined, understandably so. Republicans tend to side more on the side of protection of liberty, although not exclusively. And Democrats today tend to fit themselves more in the context of responsiveness, but not absolutely. So I think it would be fascinating to do a poll like that and to see where the American public lie on that question. And if we're able to find some kind of middle ground, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks we should run away from liberty. I think it's critically important. It's the bedrock of our system. What I talk about is restructuring the government so it's as responsive and as accountable as it is good at protecting liberty. And I think it's that responsiveness and accountability where we are running into trouble today. Jeannie, I hope you do that poll someday. When I was thinking through that question, I was thinking of Singapore. There's no 22nd Amendment. Lee Kuan Yew presided as prime minister for 31 years. He created a high-income economy, very safe environment. He imposed a system of meritocracy, administered highly effectively and with an anti-corrupt government and civil service. He also led by authoritarian rule. He restricted freedom of the press. He restricted public protests, labor strikes. He exacted harsh punishments such as caning, executions for first-time drug and gun offenses, and he brought defamation lawsuits against some of his political opponents. So the question is, to what degree should we be willing to give up liberty and return for more responsive, effective, and accountable government? TJ, thank you for asking that question, because my next project is in this area of comparing autocracy and democracy something that the past president had talked about, something our current president is deeply focused on. And I think that we should think about what are the reasons why in the last several decades we've seen a decline in democracies around the world. And there is a variety of explanations for that. But I think one of the major explanations and one that doesn't get enough attention is the fact that there is a sense amongst people around the world that democracy doesn't work. It doesn't deliver. There was a great piece that Bill Maher, I don't know if you ever watched Bill Maher, but Bill Maher had on several months ago where he talked about the issue of infrastructure. And he talked about the fact that China is eating our lunch is how he described it, because, of course, he uses much more colorful language than I would ever think of. And he's absolutely right. When it comes to infrastructure, China is eons ahead of the United States. Of course, if you're in an authoritarian, not autocratic state, you can be well ahead of a democracy on that because the system is designed to deliver. But in the process, people don't have liberties and freedoms that we treasure over here. So my long-winded answer to the question is that I fear that if we don't show, as our president talks about, that democracy can deliver on key issues that many people agree with, people will look elsewhere for somebody else to deliver on it. And that'll often be in the direction of autocracy and authoritarianism. I think that bottom line is governments must exercise some modicum of power. It should be limited. It should be designed to protect our freedoms and liberties. But when we are in the throes of a problem where children are being slaughtered in their classroom or our bridges and tunnels are falling apart or we don't have broadband or people are coming through the border or many millions don't have health care, you can't have it be 100 years without the government being able to address those challenges. 
because when it gets to that point, people turn away and they look for other solutions. And that is, in my mind, what some Americans even, but people around the world have done of recent, is they're looking for some kind of savior, who is often authoritarian in nature, to come and right the ship. And I think that is an incredibly dangerous prospect. So is it the structure or is it the quality of people we attract to run? I have a theory that we have parties that would prefer followers rather than leaders. They want somebody who's willing to sacrifice his or her objective opinion and ability to lead independently in return for the massive amount of cash and the infrastructure that's required to actually win elections. So there's a tendency, if you actually look at the individuals, we tend to attract people who are narcissistic, for example, and it's incredibly important to them to win, and they're willing to sacrifice that independent leadership. So is it a personal problem that we're just attracting the wrong people and tolerating it by putting them back in office time after time after time, or is the system itself that forces that? I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think we have, unfortunately, you know, many problems to go around. So I think there are a variety of problems. I would say this for many political scientists going back to the mid 20th century. So this goes back a ways. They have looked at parties quite differently than many of us look at them today in that they have looked at responsible parties as one of the solutions to the problem that I'm talking about. Political scientists sometimes get a bad rap for turning to parties to resolve this dilemma of this division of power. But the reason is quite simple at its core. If your system is so divided, you need an institution like political parties or something else nobody has created yet but could come in the future to bring people together in government and to resolve problems. And that is what happened at our founding, and that is what continues to happen not often enough. But when we do get something done, like, say, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, quote-unquote, it was because the party was able to come together and push it through. And one of the oddities of our system is that the framers railed against political parties, and rightly so. They found them corrupt and full of people who were up to no good and you look at Washington's farewell address or Federalist 10, and you could see the signs of it all over. And yet, what did they do the minute the government was formed? They found themselves forming into political parties. And the reason was because when they wanted to get something done, in that case, much of it having to do with the treasury of the country, they realized if we don't join together in some kind of coalition, we're not going to get anything done. And of course, that was when we had 13 states. We now have 50 states, 535 members of Congress. So to get things done, political parties are seen by many political scientists as a solution when they are responsible. And that's a whole nother issue, making them responsible. So I would say we should be cautious about only looking at the negative aspects of political parties because they do have something to offer in a system this divided. Now, I live in New York, and I could tell you straight out, we have the benefit of being known as one of the most corrupt states in the country, sometimes bucking with Illinois for that. And a lot of that has to do with our party system. So I'm well aware of the irresponsible nature of parties as well. But I think there is a flip side to that. When you're going to divide the system this much, you need something to bring it back together and cross those divisions. And political parties are one way to do that. Jeannie, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about American democracy in crisis. 
when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno, author of a compelling new book, American Democracy in Crisis, The Case for Rethinking Madisonian Government, and a professor of political science and international studies at Iona College. Jeannie, we were finishing up talking about the structural issues in general, but let's talk about some of the solutions. We have Article 5. You've referenced that. There are two different paths to take, and there are some extra constitutional paths. Can you describe what's happened in the past and perhaps things that you would recommend going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that we are sort of comfortable with the idea of an amendment process. There are constitutions without amendment processes, but our framers gave us one so that we could make changes. That said, it is a very difficult process to get through, and we can just reflect on the fact that we've really only had 12 amendments since the Civil War, and really only 10 viable because, of course, two prohibition and its repeal canceled each other out. But the one major way to make some of these structural changes, if we chose to, would be the regular amendment process that's often used where Congress proposes an amendment and then it goes for ratification at the state level. Again, very, very hard to get things through that process, but it is the process we've used. The framers also gave us another way, and that is in Article 5, what is known as the CONCON or the Constitutional Convention. And that would be where we would hold another constitutional convention, if you will, to make some of these changes. Now, that is interesting to think about. A lot of people are concerned about that because they think you would open essentially a Pandora's box and it'd be difficult to shut it down. Who would go to the convention? Who would make these changes? Could we reach any agreement? So those kinds of constitutional avenues, there's really those two, the regular way and the constitutional convention way. Both of those, I think, would be really difficult to see happening at this time. And what type of extra constitutional means have been utilized in the past by our leaders? And what would you recommend in the future? So the extra constitutional means are the ones where I think we have the most hope, only because the constitutional ways are so difficult to achieve. And I think there's a whole history going back almost to the framing of people who have been suggesting different avenues for both constitutional and extra constitutional reform. But I think the ones that I think would be the most important for extra constitutional or constitutional reforms would be those that diminish the divisions of power. So just to give you one example, if you were to, say, change some of the filibuster rules in the Senate. Now, this gets a lot of attention today, and it's something we focus on more today than we used to. That's not a constitutional issue. It's a Senate rules issue. So it's extra constitutional in that regard. And what that would allow for is it would allow for passage of bills on a simple majority vote. So that's one example of what we're talking about. Other sort of extra constitutional ideas would be things like decreasing ticket splitting, right, where voters go into the booth and they can vote for Democrats for one thing and Republicans for something else. In other words, incentivize party voting. And what that would do is it would make sure that we don't have as much divided government. 
one of the hallmarks of the modern era is that our government is not only divided in the ways we've been talking about, but it's divided by party. We may see this, I would suspect we'll see this coming out of the 2022 midterm. I would suspect that Republicans will pick up one or both houses of the Congress. When that happens, if that does happen, which I think it will, then we will have divided government. And one of the reasons we see Democrats pushing so hard for passage of infrastructure at such a big cost now is because they don't think anything is going to happen once we get into that midterm cycle and if the Republicans take over. So divided government, again, makes it difficult to get things done. And there are ways that you could reform the system to decrease lit ticket voting, as we call it, and incentivize party voting. So those are some of the sort of extra constitutional avenues that you could take. You could take constitutional avenues like allowing the president to select half or a third of his cabinet from the Senate. And what that would do would incentivize Senate members to work with the White House. In other words, bridge the division between the executive and the legislative branch. So there is a whole history of ideas, and I could really say no shortage of ideas about how to reduce these divisions but it's getting the political will together to think about these issues and make these changes that has proven so difficult for the last 200 plus years. Well, Jeannie, you do an excellent job in the book of listing a number of those types of opportunities and things to look at. And one of the things I appreciated, you didn't try and force any of those issues. You just provided them factually and allow people to reach their own informed decision. So I thought that was a very appropriate approach, and I thank you for doing that because that is not the norm. Now, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and the various projects on your plate? Thank you so much. My website is my name, net, and I post all kinds of things on there. And they can also follow me on Twitter at Jeannie Zeno, although I will confess I am not the best at social media, so I need to get better at that, TJ. And that's one thing I'm going to try to do as I try to get this message out. Well, Dr. Jeannie Sheehan Zeno, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and to have the opportunity to discuss your most recent book, American Democracy in Crisis, The Case for Rethinking Madisonian Government. Everyone, and I mean everyone, should read your book. As I said before, it's extremely well-researched and written, and it's quite thought-provoking. It's an excellent primer for those who may not have had the opportunity to be taught civics in today's world, and it fills the gaps for those who may have forgotten over the years. It also exposes the imperfections of the Constitution in a constructive way. So, Jeannie, I wish you great success with your book, and thank you again for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you so much for having me, KJ. It was great to talk to you. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.